It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, why is the UK handling the refugee crisis so badly? And what could we do better? This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Each afternoon, I'm joined by leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting across Europe to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's day 14, and today I'm with The Telegraph's defence and security editor, Dominic Nichols, and our assistant foreign editor, Finisha Rainey. Dom, let's start with an update from the front lines. How are things looking on the ground in Ukraine? Very quiet yesterday in terms of movement. A lot of shelling uh, still continuing around the north and the northeast and uh, in the southern corridor around Mariupol, but uh, not a lot of uh, advancing on the on the ground. Um, the big uh, big news was these uh, Polish MiG, MiG-29s, 28 of them that Poland has suggested could be sent to Ukraine in a, in a sort of stepping up, ramping up of the lethal aid um, that we've seen so far. Got into a bit of a mess yesterday with Poland saying that they would uh, send these planes to the US air base at Ramstein in Germany because, and they quoted, the Polish said that they were not part of the war, put the US in a bit of a difficult position. They said they weren't going to fly them forward or, or, or do anything with them and they, they should not be sent there. So in a bit of an impasse at the moment. And, and it's led to a couple of thoughts. Firstly, why, why MiG-29s? I mean, capable aircraft, but, but quite old. And 28 is good. But as we've seen with the, the enormous amount of uh, equipment that, that Russia has deployed into Ukraine, numbers don't mean everything, if they mean anything at all. I mean, you've got to ally them with systems and the people and the processes and everything to make it work. So it's very odd that, that this issue has come out of nowhere. And if the Western allies were looking to supply more lethal equipment above and beyond the anti-tank missiles and anti-air missiles, then why not air defence? There's a number of uh, former Soviet countries who, who could supply air defence equipment. And that, again, would, would take the sting out of it slightly. They could be, um, they'd be described as defensive lethal aid weapons, if, if, if you can have such a description. But um, what it's done is it's, it's bring the, the threshold of what lethal aid is and what it isn't into sharp focus, because after all, it's talking about killing people at the end of the day. So does it matter what the means of that delivery is? But by having this spat developed between Poland and the US and sort of discussion more broadly in NATO, it sort of almost gives a vote to, to President Putin to say, 
where that line is between what is acceptable and not acceptable lethal aid. I just wonder if there's a if there's a role here for Finland, Sweden. Perhaps um, they are not part of NATO. They've been very very keen to stay out of NATO, but they are embedded in the Western security architecture. And I wonder if possibly these aircraft routing to Ukraine via a neutral country in, in this context of Finland or Sweden might actually be quite helpful. But that um, that's just some thoughts. I, I don't know where this, uh, what, why this, this political issue has, has been played out in the public eye. It's been quite surprising. And there was news today on the uh, Chernobyl nuclear plant north of Kiev. Venetia, do you want to talk us through what's happening there? Yeah, so this is quite a worrying development. Obviously, last week we saw the attack on Zaporizhia nuclear power station down in the south of Ukraine that's still under Russian control. There's apparently 400 troops there. Chernobyl was seized a few weeks before that, right at the beginning of the conflict. And what we've heard now is that it's gone offline. So essentially, the electricity lines to the plant have been damaged. No one can get to them to repair them because of the fighting. And that's going to have a few effects One of them is that the people inside the plant, and there are still about 200 Ukrainian workers trapped there. Apparently, they've been working for 13 days straight, which is a concern in and of itself. Um, But these people won't be able to monitor any spike in radiation if there's no power. So that's that's a worry. There was a spike, for example, back in May 2021. And, you know, once you see that spike, you can do things to, to prevent it. You can evacuate people if you think it's an issue. But if there's no power, then the people in the plant have no idea what's actually happening. The second big thing that the lack of power will affect is, is the air conditioning system. So inside this two billion confinement unit that was set up after the 1986 disaster, which led to hundreds of people being killed and radiation over a very large part of Europe, this confinement unit was built as sort of a bunker over the whole thing to prevent any further radiation leaking out. Now, it gets very warm in there because there's still nuclear material that is giving off radiation. So an air conditioning unit was installed to prevent any condensation forming. And what was happening before this air conditioning unit was there was that it was almost raining inside and the condensation, the water was reacting with the nuclear materials and setting off some sort of chain reaction So to avoid that, the air conditioning unit was installed. Obviously, if there's no power, that won't be working. There's also a separate issue where some fuel rods that are spent have been taken outside of the reactor and put in their own sort of separate uh, buildings as part of the decommissioning process. They are kept cool by a water cooling system, but there's only... 48 hours, basically, until that water cooling system will stop. There's about two days worth of diesel to keep that going. So you've got these two separate issues. And we're not saying anything catastrophic is happening immediately, but it is an issue. And if they can't monitor what's going on, if they can't stop condensation from forming, if they can't keep these spent fuel rods cool, then in a matter of weeks, we could start to see radioactivity leaking out of this plant. That's the situation at the moment. Ukraine has called for a ceasefire so that they can urgently repair the power lines. This is obviously an issue of you know, regional or global interest. So they are working to try and find a way to work with the Russians to stop that from happening. Thank you very much, Venetia. Um, another thing just to pick up on, I think, there was news in the Telegraph today about the uh, British soldiers who've apparently gone to Ukraine. Dom, as a, as a former soldier, what's your take on this? Well, I have to say, I'm I'm kind of in in line with uh, what James Heapy, the Minister for Armed Forces, said last week. He, he said that um, if you want to stand up for democracy and, and and you're prepared to put a uniform on and and fight and what have you, then uh, you should. If you're in this country, anyway, you should join the, join the British Army. It's uh, we discussed it briefly last week. It's it's very difficult to see how these people uh, and we haven't really bottomed out if it's actually 
you know, how many have gone and, and quite where and whether or not they are they are serving soldiers or veterans or, or what have you. But um, if they've gone, there's great moral case to do that. But uh, as I've said before, I wonder if putting on uniform, firing a weapon you've probably never picked up before, reacting to orders in a language that you might not understand or have ever heard before, how much military utility are you actually bringing to the battlefield? And are you are you being a help or a hindrance? If people feel that strongly that they want to put themselves in harm's way, and it's a very laudable aim, I'm not knocking that at all. But as, I, as I've said before, I question whether or not it's better to, to help elsewhere, to help some of the humanitarian aid uh, efforts. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'd like to, I've been trying to speak to some of these people to say, do you want to go there and fight for you or, or, or for Ukraine? Because if you're prepared to do anything to help the cause, then you might be best placed at a casualty uh, exchange point or some form of admin or logistics place. That might be where you are best suited, your skills, your language skills and, and what have you. So it's a it's a an interesting story, but um, I wonder quite how much utility this, this, this foreign legion will actually bring um, to the battlefield. And Venetia, I know you wanted to speak a bit about this interesting story that's come out of a, a, a Ukrainian colonel who sent a message to his cousin, who who is a Russian politician. Do you want to speak a bit about that? Yeah, I think this is just sort of one of the one of the many like human stories that we're seeing. We've heard a lot about how Ukrainians and Russians are very close. Lots of people have relatives there or very close friends. You know, they work there, they travel there, they take their holidays there. You know, these were not two countries that were previously particularly at war in terms of the two people. Obviously, there's been an issue in the East for a long time now. Um, but so we we saw a video posted by a Ukrainian, quite a senior Ukrainian officer down in Odessa, um, which is a Black Sea port city in the south of Ukraine. And he put out this very heartfelt video, essentially pleading with his cousin, who's a Russian lawmaker in the Duma on the Defence Committee, pleading with him to stop the war, saying our parents would be turning in their graves if they could see what was happening now. Don't you remember how we used to play together in these areas? And aren't you ashamed of what's happening? It was just a really, it was a really emotional message. And I think it really shows that these long held ties between people in different countries are really being frayed here. And there's a very human level to this conflict on top of the sort of the tanks rolling and the military columns and everything. And I think it's important to keep sight of that as well. I thought that this video was a really good example of that. And there's a, another another human element potentially to, to pick up on as well, Venetia, is the impact that Russian mothers and soldiers' mothers in Russia have on have on the country. We've published a few things on that in the Telegraph over the past few days. Um, Dom and Venetia, what are the impacts? What is the impact of, of Russian Russian mothers? Yeah, so we've done a great story today about um, the Soldiers' Mothers Committee and the sort of role that Russian mothers are playing in all of this. We've spoken a lot about how some Russian soldiers don't seem to have been aware of what they were doing when they invaded. Maybe they thought they were on training exercises. Maybe they didn't know exactly where they were. But it doesn't seem that they were as prepared as we might have expected. And certainly their family members don't seem to have known what was happening. So the Soldiers' Mothers Committee in Russia is an advocate for veterans. And they've been calling on Putin to provide more transparency. And Putin actually addressed mothers directly yesterday, saying, you know, we will take care of your husbands and the men in your families. We also saw the Ukrainian government to set up a hotline called Come Back From Ukraine Alive. Their plan is to try and get the truth out and to help Russians to find their relatives who are in Ukraine. We've seen a lot of videos and images of Russian soldiers who have given themselves up or been captured and trying to call home, often in tears. There's also a telegram app that's been set up in Ukraine, Look For Your People, where Russian people, Russian mothers can look for their, their sons, Russian wives can look for their husbands. And this is all about this sort of 
desperate women trying to get in touch with the men in their lives who they haven't heard from for months, trying to find information about where they are, calling them lost and very tearful messages that we're hearing. I think it's just a really powerful aspect of all of this and, and shows that a lot of people have been caught by surprise by it and are not, not necessarily willing participants in this war, perhaps. Tom, I don't know if you want to come in on that at all. Uh, not so much on that, but just, just another couple of quick points, if I may. So last night, the CIA director, Bill Burns, who was US ambassador to Russia 2005 to 2008, he was speaking in front of the House Intelligence Committee in Washington and uh, gave confirmation, if, if any were needed, that this that the plan uh, has gone completely awry for Russia. He said Putin planned to seize Kiev in the first couple of days, and um, the plan was based on four false assumptions. Firstly, that Ukraine was uh, was weak militarily and politically. Secondly, that Europe was going to be distracted and would offer no, no particular response. Thirdly, that the Russian economy was strong enough to withstand any sanctions that would, that would come back. And finally, the Russian military had modernised and would fight effectively. Uh, and he says that they, all, all four of those assumptions have been found wanting. And he gave this quote. He said, it's going to be ugly for the next few weeks, which I think we've all been warning about. And just one other final final point, if I may, we've been tracking the issue of possible false flag uh, attacks or reports from Russia about um, any Ukrainian nuclear activity, dirty bomb or, or nuclear program as a way of justifying their invasion. Well, I have to admit, I got that wrong. They didn't say nuclear. But yesterday, the Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs spokeswoman, Maria Zakharova, she came out and said that they found component parts of a US-sponsored biological weapons program being run. Uh, it's the first thing we've heard of it, of course. Uh, this wasn't mentioned in the run-up to the war. This wasn't given as, as part of the reason for the invasion. This wasn't one of Putin's demands before the war. But uh, but no, apparently they have found, the Russians have found elements of a program including plague, anthrax, cholera and rabbit fever that the Ukrainians were developing with, with uh, US assistance. So there we go. As expected, these developments, these, these discoveries are coming out now as a way of sort of uh, retrospectively justifying um, the invasion a couple of weeks ago. And Venetia, I believe you had one more thing to add about Chechens in in Ukraine. Yeah, so obviously there's been ongoing focus on this convoy that's trying to reach Kiev and questions about why why the Russians haven't managed to reach Kiev quickly enough. There's been lots of fighting. What we've heard today is that Chechens, more Chechens, are now being deployed because Russia is essentially struggling to assemble a large enough force to take Kiev. We've seen reports that 100% of the forces that Russia had been amassing around Ukraine um, in the last few months have now been deployed. So clearly they're having to turn elsewhere. Um, and apparently thousands more Chechens and other sort of Kremlin allied mercenaries have been sent to the front line north of Kiev ahead of what we expect to be a renewed push to capture the city in the coming days. And finally, I'd just like to ask you both, we hear that further talks between the two sides are continuing. Should we take much hope from this? Has there been any shift in positions from, from either the Russians or the Ukrainians? No shift in position, but I just reiterate what I said the other day, that talking is always is always better than not. I'll say again that uh, all wars end and most wars end by negotiations. So the sooner you can start those negotiations, the longer you can keep them going for, the more you can talk as long as you're not uh, you're not being used. And, and um, obviously that's a very delicate line. But the, the more you're talking, the more chances there are of actually leading somewhere and bringing this thing to a resolution. Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely right, and that's the, that's the position that you know the Ukrainians and Zelensky have, have taken that it's better to be talking than not, and we're all hoping for some kind of resolution. We don't know what form that will take. We don't know how seriously the Russians are taking this, but I, I do think it's good to hope. Good to keep hoping for now. During this conflict, the refugee crisis isn't looming; it's already started, and for the UK, it's not going well. 
Britain's Home Office is under fire, accused of a lack of compassion over a chaotic and slow visa application process for those fleeing the conflict. Boris Johnson, for his part, says the UK is opening its arms to those seeking refuge. But what's happening behind the scenes, and why is it so difficult for Ukrainian refugees to enter the UK? To find out, I spoke to Olivia Utley and Mutaz Ahmed from our comment team, and Tony Diver, our Whitehall correspondent. Tony started by filling us in on what's really going on at the UK borders. Well, I mean, the government's under a lot of pressure to try and facilitate these Ukrainians travelling across to the UK. As you say, there have been about 2 million who've left Ukraine already, and a lot of those people are trying to find somewhere safe to go to in the West. We know that so far there's been about 17,000 people who have applied for a UK visa to travel over to the UK, and the government's opened up a scheme which it says will help people travel here and sort of help women and children who are fleeing the war zone. The difficulty is that there have been some pretty serious administrative issues in sorting out this system, and that what's happened basically is that only about 300 visas have actually been granted so far. And a lot of people are stuck at visa processing centres, either in Ukraine or in Poland. So we've got our reporter, Henry Bodkin, is out there in Poland at the moment. He filed a dispatch this morning where he'd spoken to a British person who was over there helping a relative. And that person said that they'd been instructed by the Home Office to go to a visa processing centre back in Lviv in Ukraine, despite the fact that they'd already made their way into Poland, despite the fact that Lviv is actually currently 50 miles inside the war zone. So the Home Office is advising people to go to centres that don't exist. They've been telling people that they can turn up without an appointment when, in fact, it turns out you do need an appointment. And there is a fairly complicated sort of process that people have to go through, which could take two weeks. And these people are sort of generally sleeping, essentially sleeping rough and sleeping out in the freezing cold because they don't have anywhere to go because their homes have been consumed by war. So it's not a great look for Home Office at the moment, it must be said. The government's come out and sort of there's been a lot of warm words towards people leaving Ukraine who Boris Johnson says the UK is opening its arms to. Whereas in reality, once again, Britain demonstrates that its capabilities in organising last-minute evacuations that we saw in Afghanistan has not much improved since then. And actually, administratively, it's been a bit of a nightmare so far. Thank you, Tony. Olivia Mutaz, do you want to come in on that? Yeah, there are quite a lot of sort of different theories about what is going wrong. If you listen to Priti Patel, she's saying that the reason that there's such a blockage is because the Home Office doesn't want to let in Ukrainians without checks because it'll encourage a build-up of people at Calais, some of whom will be people who've got in via people smugglers, and she thinks that it's going to encourage another another flow of small boats coming. That's what she's briefing some journalists. Um, but then you've got Ian Blackford saying that Priti Patel, this is just part of Priti Patel's hostile environment for, for refugees, and there are some MPs who are saying that Priti Patel has just misread the mood here. She thinks that she's got to follow some sort of anti-immigration line to follow through on what she promised in the manifesto and she doesn't understand that actually people feel the country feels very very differently about Ukrainian refugees than it does about uh, other economic migrants coming in. So there are all those arguments going on and then there's what Tony was talking about which I think is the most compelling argument that it's much more cock-up than conspiracy. Um, As has been said many times the Home Office just doesn't seem to be fit for purpose and it just isn't prepared organisationally and logistically to be letting in these new refugees. Um, and you hear these stories of, of you know, families who, who, who are trying to bring over their... A woman who's trying to bring over her sister. She lives in Aberdeen and uh, her sister and her family. And her sister and her family are being asked to provide photocopies and biometric tests and all sorts of 
different forms of identification, which obviously no one fleeing from a war zone could possibly have on them. So it does seem to be more cock up than conspiracy. But then you've got all of these other competing theories about why it's such a mess. Um, uh, and and that doesn't really play very well for the Home Office either. Um, there's, there's no clarity about, about what's going wrong, which is quite frustrating for for anyone who's, who's desperately trying to flee their country and also for all sorts of politicians who, who are finding their constituents getting very angry with them because because the situation is just such a mess. Mutas. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with Tony and Liv. I, I don't think there's a problem with political will, right? So I'm, maybe Prince Patel's freelancing, but like the message from the Prime Minister is pretty clear, which is that this country wants to be as open as possible to Ukrainian refugees. It's not really a problem with political will. The political will was there. Like, you know, we saw the House of Commons yesterday when Selectsky spoke united in support of Ukraine. I think I think the British public is pretty open to uh, accepting Ukrainian refugees. Uh, these are going to be people who want to return to their homeland once the Russians are defeated. The problem is with the Home Office. It's definitely with the Home Office. Anyone who's covered sort of home affairs, you know, will know this. The, the department has been sort of shaped over the last 10 years through the Cameron era, through the Theresa May era, up to now, shaped to say no to people applying. You know, whether that's the ambassador's wife or academics in Africa uh, or in Asia, uh, people who are highly qualified. The department's sort of designed to say no to them. Uh, and so when you when you ask this department that, that it has gotten so used to saying no to start saying yes to thousands of people, it's obviously going to have a problem. The second issue is that it's... It's just vast. It's a massive, massive department, lots of bureaucracy, and it has this sort of papers, please culture. Uh, and we saw this with Windrush, right? Uh, the, the system couldn't understand the difference between a Windrush Brit and an illegal immigrant. And that's because the system is designed to be entirely based on sort of papers and applications and face-to-face contact or even Skype calls and interviews have become more limited in recent years. So that's a problem, right? There, there are some stories of, you know, people unable to apply because they don't have a stable internet connection in Ukraine. Well, of course they don't have a stable internet connection in Ukraine. And and as soon as they cut off, apparently they, they have to start the process again. Well, that doesn't make sense. And the, the third problem is the Home Office is, is actually quite unique compared to other countries, in that it combines immigration handling with internal security. So you've got the Department for Domestic Security uh, together with what should probably be a separate department for processing visas and processing people. When they're together, you're going to end up with unnecessary blockages. Uh, And some of the security concerns I think we're hearing are, are born out of that. So there are basically two ways you can fix this. Either you say any Ukrainian who comes to this country can just come in, or you bring in another department. And it was interesting in PMQ's Boris Johnson suggested perhaps the department for levelling up could play a role. That might be a way of circumventing these very long-term issues uh, in the Home Office. Olivia, Tony, and says you work in politics, speak to a lot of politicians. Uh, What's the reaction to this been in the Conservative Party? What are you hearing from backbenchers? Well, I think there's, there is a, what Mutas said it was right, there is a feeling among MPs across the House that Britain needs to be doing as much as it possibly can to help these people. And I think having Zelensky speak uh, this week, yesterday, probably solidified that. But also remember last week we talked about 
the Ukrainian ambassador coming and visiting Prime Minister's questions and receiving a standing ovation from the House of Commons. I think there is a feeling on all sides that the government needs to be doing everything that it can. I thought there was an interesting exchange today, actually, in PMQs between Ian Blackford and the Prime Minister, where he said that the country thought that Britain wasn't doing enough. And the Prime Minister replied that he thought that Ian Blackford had misjudged public opinion and actually the country thought that that, you know, people in the general public think that Britain is doing enough. And there is a sort of question about what it means to be doing enough. Clearly, there are various different sorts of policy leaders that the government can pull in this situation. Uh, it can send humanitarian aid, which we've done. It, we can send military aid. We can send you know, arms, which we've done. And then there is just this question of how many people you can take on. So you know, how quite exactly, from a, from a purely political point of view, the public will pass those various different policies and come to their own conclusion about whether or not the government is doing enough is quite a difficult question to answer. I think certainly at this point, it feels like everyone is sort of pushing for ministers to do more than they currently are. I think the other interesting point is that we have slightly the same debate about refugees coming from Ukraine to the UK as we did during the Syrian conflict and people coming from Afghanistan, which is to say, why exactly are people coming to the UK rather than going elsewhere in Europe, because, it, I mean, it's a lot further to go, is one is a, is a main point to point out. I mean, it would be a lot easier to get to Germany than it would be to get to the UK from Ukraine. And that point was actually made in a tweet this afternoon by the Ukrainian embassy to the UK, who said, well, really, the UK is probably not going to be a main destination for people who are fleeing, because people are you know, pretty likely to want to stop in the first place that's safe. So if you do have women and children who are desperately telling you, please let us come to Britain, then you probably should, because these people probably don't have any other choice. Um, no one particularly wants to schlep all the way through Belgium and France and to get all the way over and, and then go through the Calais jungle to get back to the UK. And I think that point is quite compelling. And I think that probably will cut through quite seriously with politicians here who, who you know, are not understating the desperation of the situation that pe these people are in. Several of you have mentioned this, this phrase as a, a cock-up, not a conspiracy. So I guess my question is, who's ultimately responsible for this? And do we think there will be any consequences? Or do you think if they change tack quickly enough, they'll survive? Olivia? Well, I think we've got to say that Priti Patel probably is ultimately responsible for this. And it does seem like there's quite a lot of cabinet frustration with her. Um, we've, we've seen Ben Wallace sort of try to defer issues over to Priti Patel. Liz Truss said on the radio yesterday that um, when asked about the refugees issue, she said, well, that's Priti Patel's concern, not mine. And it doesn't seem like Priti Patel is communicating particularly well with the rest of the cabinet. You've got Grant Shapp sort of saying that actually he, he's defending what the government's position on refugees is, saying that actually not many refugees would want to come to the UK um, and it's much better for them. Ukraine would like them to stay in neighbouring countries uh, because then they can return more easily, which might be true, but but that doesn't seem to be official government policy. That's that's not actually what Priti Patel's saying. She's sort of freelancing, as we were saying earlier, and suggesting that her reason for it is that, is that she doesn't want an, a whole new influx of small boats, which also probably isn't true. The problem is probably that the Home Office is is just a bit of a mess and can't cope with this with this influx. I think it now seems quite likely that Priti Patel doesn't survive the next reshuffle. Um, she's she's been loyal to Boris Johnson. She's a firm Brexiteer. She's taken a very strong line on immigration, and she's got this new immigration system going, which Boris Johnson quite likes. But she really has fallen short um, on this occasion. And also during the COVID times, she, she, she was a bit of a liability on the airwaves and we saw that she was taken off. So I think Priti Patel is probably on her last legs. But 
if anyone disagrees, do feel free to <laughs> tell me. Well, it's always seen as the department that you don't really want, isn't it, in a reshuffle? No one wants to be the Home Secretary. It's one of the great offices of state, so it comes with it a certain element of status. But uh, it is one of the most difficult things to do is be Home Secretary because of what you were saying earlier, Moosehouse, about the huge range of issues that you have to cover. And, you know, from a terror attack that goes wrong, uh, ending in, in, in people's deaths, issues in the police, and then the whole issue of immigration, national security. I mean, it's it is an astonishingly broad department. Um, and so I think people are generally willing to cut Home Secretaries a bit of slack uh, on the basis that there will eventually be a political crisis that ends their career. I'm not totally convinced that this is the one for Priti Patel. I mean, I don't wouldn't say necessarily that the, mi- the migration or refugee issue is the defining political issue of this crisis so far. And, you know, there are people like Ben Wallace, this trust, the PM, who are coming out of this quite well and, you know, showing the UK as a, as a generous nation that's, that's doing its best. Uh, so I'm not sure it necessarily has the ability to become an all-consuming story for Priti Patel. But, you know, then again, these things are difficult to predict. We'll probably be sat here next week talking about how she's gone. So, <laughs> it's a fool's game making those sort of predictions. Yeah, lots of people in the Tory party are frustrated because, as you said, Tony, Britain is doing lots in other areas. You know, I, I think Ben Wallace announced just now that we've sent 3,500 anti-tank weapons to Ukraine and we're about to send more. You're seeing these videos on social media of of Ukrainian fighters sort of displaying their British N-laws and, uh, you know, thanking Her, Her Majesty the Queen for giving them their weapons. And we were doing this while Germany and France were sort of quite nervous about sending weapons. I don't think they were sending these kinds of weapons at all. Uh, we we avoided German airspace to save us the trouble of, of asking them early on during the crisis in transporting weapons. So all this good stuff, and it's being undermined by this troublesome, sort of troubled department that every month it has a crisis because it's just, its systems have for about two decades not worked properly. Uh, so who's responsible? Probably like 30 years of home office policy. Yeah, that, that's the response. It's it's frustration. No, no one should think this is where the British government wants to be when it comes to refugees. Uh, the British government wants to do a lot more. It's just stuck in this muddle and this mess of bureaucracy. So I'd be curious, Amit, as you touched on this earlier, but how do we get out of this and how, how would that happen? Are we looking for Boris Johnson to put pressure on Priti Patel to make, to make the process simpler? What are the obvious things that we can see coming down the track? Or, or is there anything? Is this, a, is this, a, is this a, um, a row that's going to continue over the next few days? It will continue, but the easiest way out of it is to circumvent the Home Office. Uh, you're not going to fix the Home Office overnight. It, you know, it consumes every scheme. So, like, you're, you're not going to fix it overnight. The easiest way is to bring in someone from the outside, I don't know, someone like Michael Gove, and task them with dealing with Ukrainian refugees uh, and setting up a sort of separate system that makes it easier for them to apply. That's the quickest way to deal with it. And it shouldn't take too long because, as again, as Tony was saying, we're not going to end up with the same number of Ukrainian refugees as Poland. And we shouldn't because a lot of these refugees want to go home um, uh, when this war is over. And Part of the focus has to be on sort of providing humanitarian aid and and financial assistance to countries bordering Ukraine. But yeah, there will be an announcement, I think, Boris Johnson said today in the coming days. It will probably be a way to sort of work around the Home Office system rather than fix it. Tony? I think one of the other things to say is that previously when we've had issues with 
refugees when we've been looking at evacuations. And I'm thinking now of the Afghanistan crisis, which was not that long ago. The way that we solved that, to the little extent that we did, was by sending over British troops who were able to stand in the airport in Afghanistan, uh, in Kabul, and help process this paperwork um, help railroad things through back in London, put pressure on Whitehall. You know, the sort of uh, the Defence Secretary did a good job over in that crisis. There is a slightly different political context here, which is that what we're talking about is right on the border between NATO and Russia. And so, you know, if, if, if Britain needs to send a load of troops to try and help this refugee issue, that's probably not going to do much for the tensions between the West and Putin. So that is another consideration here is that actually the, you know, the leaders that are available to pull are slightly constrained by a more complicated geopolitical situation and using the MOD in the way that we have done previously is, is not necessarily an option. Olivia Utley, do you want to come in on any of that or add to anything? Yeah, I, I think that, I mean, one thing that the government has done yesterday is appoint Richard Harrington as the Minister for Refugees. He's working across the Home Office and the Department for Local Communities, which seems to be quite a sensible move. It's one way of sort of circumnavigating the Home Office a bit, but it's also an acknowledgement that resettling refugees is a matter for communities as much as it is a matter for for the Home Office, um, where they're going to live, what they're going to do when they get here, etc., should all be taken into account. And Richard Harrington is seen as as a safe pair of hands. He was the Minister for Refugees with the Syrian crisis and he was sort of widely believed to have done a pretty good job there um so that seems to be a sort of good positive step forward and the, the sort of thing that Mutas is talking about that ways to kind of get around the home office rather than working with it again it's probably not great news for Pretty Patel it looks a little bit like she can't deal with what's happening but an acknowledgement that the home office is too big and unwieldy to sort of deal with a crisis like this nimbly and ably is probably the right thing to do but you know is it going to be enough probably not Maybe we should end on something a little different. We all saw Volodymyr Zelensky's address to the to the House of Commons uh, and the Lords yesterday via via video link. What were your impressions of that? How did it go down, Olivia? Um, well, it was obviously a very powerful speech. It was it was a slightly awkward format. There was someone translating over the top of it as it as it was happening, um, and it was coming through MPs' audio kits. But it it was a very powerful moment. Obviously, it was the first time this has ever happened before, and it really sort of underline for me Zelensky's charisma. You know, he was considered a bit of a joke figure when he stepped into the presidential role. Never forget that he came up in politics through the most unusual route. He was an actor, comic actor, who then got given the role of president, which was the exact role that he had played. Um, And people thought that he was going to be a bit out of his depth. But actually, having that sort of charisma, the way that he relates with people on on a very kind of visceral level is exactly what this crisis needs. And I thought he did it again yesterday, echoing the words of Churchill. He really, you know, got under the skin of those Tory MPs and, and that made the pleas that he was making resonate far more. So, yeah, I thought it was I thought it was a really interesting and powerful moment for British politics. I agree. Although, although he missed my favourite line out of that speech, which is, we shall never surrender. He, he didn't say that um, and he should have. But I thought it was very sad. The, the House of Commons looked totally helpless. You know, here was the president of a European democracy speaking about, you know, this is the battle for Ukraine. This is to be or not to be. And, and Ukraine has decided it is to be. And our response was 600 M- MPs stood up and clapped. I thought it was quite sad. But no, it was, it was a powerful moment. Tony Diver, our Whitehall correspondent, uh, would you like the final word? 
my god, the pressure of having the final word. I will, I will boringly just nominate what what uh, Livia and Mutaz have said on this one. I think it really demonstrated what an absolute class act uh, Zelensky is. You know, this is a man who is literally out on the front line a lot of the time, who is directing his country through an existential war. And what he did was deliver a highly personalised speech to MPs, tapping into exactly those emotions uh, and those colourful references that he knew would resonate. And he came away from it, I think, with the full support of the House. And I think that was quite important. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine coverage, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first month free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio, or have it delivered straight to your inbox when you sign up to Dispatches, our daily Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from the front line from our award-winning foreign correspondents. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter to see what we're up to. If you found this show useful, follow Ukraine The Latest on your podcast app. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Theodora Ludludis and Louisa Wells, and on Twitter, Sophie Coe.